Welcome to the Lion's Roar Dharma Center podcast from Dona Darge Temple. This public talk by a student of Lama Yeshe Jinpa was recorded during a regularly scheduled Sunday service. Good morning, welcome. I should be loud enough, I'm a loud mouth and I'm deaf, so you should be able to hear me. Um, welcome, my name is Annette. I'm um, one of Lama Jinpa's students. And I'm going to talk to you this morning about mindful recovery and healing. So hopefully you each got a, a little booklet. Oh, there, there's extra here. Yeah. And what you have is this is kind of the template that we use for mindful recovery and healing. I'll draw your attention to it later. There's a couple of things... Um, well, particularly on page uh, two, um, Lama Jimpa's 12 Steps of Liberation. Um, so what we can do, if you guys feel comfortable, we could start with Connor, and you could read one or two and just go around until we go through the entire 12 steps. Okay. okay? The truth of suffering. We experienced the truth of our addictions. Our lives were unmanageable suffering. Suffering. We admit that we crave for and grasp onto addictions as our refuge. The truth of the end of suffering. We came to see that complete cessation of craving and clinging of addiction is necessary. The truth of the path. We made a decision to follow the way of liberation and to take refuge in the wakefulness of our truth and our fellowship. Right view. We made a searching and fearless review of our lives. We are willing to acknowledge and proclaim our truth to ourselves, another human being, and the community. Right thought. We are mindful that we create the causes for suffering and liberation. Our goodness is indestructible. Right speech. We purify. Best ask for the straightforward and without judgment. Make a list of all persons we harm and are willing and able to actively make amends to them all, unless to do so would be harmful. Right livelihood. We simplify our lives, realizing we are all interconnected. We select a vocation that supports our recovery. Right effort. We realize that continuing to follow this path no matter what is joyful effort. Right mindfulness, prayer, meditation, and action. We will follow the path of kindness. Right concentration, open to the spirit of awakening as a result of these steps, we will carry this message to all people suffering with addiction. Great, thank you. Um, I wanted to start with the 12 steps because, um, number one, they're, they're quite unique. What Lamala has put down here, you're not going to see anywhere else. Um, I do have a comparison between our 12 steps and AA's 12 steps, if you want to see that. Um, my favorite is six. Um, our goodness is indestructible. Um, I'm an alcoholic, an addict, um, codependent, and uh, adult child of two alcoholics. Um, so for me... Goodness is not a word I associated with my addictions or my drinking. Um, 
but I, I wanted to talk to you about mindful recovery and healing, and I wanted to share with you just a little bit of my own personal journey and what that looked like for me. Uh, afterward, I, I'm hoping we can just open it up, and if you have questions or, you know, uh, what are you doing in, in this meeting, and why should I go, and is it for me, any of that kind of stuff, it's, it's good to talk about. Um, So let me, uh, I was just going to start with a little of my personal history. Um, even though I've been around for a decade, I don't know that, that many of you know, apart from Lama, know part of my history or my journey to recovery and healing. Um, so I'm just going to share just a little bit of it. Um, I was born in Bombay, India um, to, you know, both by parents who were born and bred uh, in Ireland. And unfortunately, they both come from long lines of alcoholics. So it runs down both sides. Um, the reason I mention Bombay is because as I reflect back on my life, um, my earliest childhood memory was age three, uh, getting my nose broken. And it wasn't even the pain or you know, being hurled in the air or impact. What cemented it in my mind was the look of horror on my father's face. And that's just kind of seared into my mind. That's my earliest memory. Um, and what happens when you grow up in a household where both your parents are battling their demons and alcoholics, um, nobody's really in charge. So um, several things happen within the family when uh, the children are not protected. So um, I'm briefly going to mention that um, there was sexual abuse in the family, but I'm not going to get into that because that's a whole different discussion. But when you grow up in this kind of family, it's very common to have um, all kinds of abuse going on, and many of it, it the children are not protected. And um, unfortunately, there's, you know, there can be predators within the family, and even relatives who can take advantage of uh, situations. So um, that being said, you know, uh, one of the sayings is, if you had a happy, normal childhood, you wouldn't be in recovery because you wouldn't have all these feelings and emotions that you need to drown or uh, obliterate. Um, so what I wanted to try to explain to you guys, because it's, it's very confusing to me, um, both my parents were, were different kind of alcoholics. Uh, my mother, when she took a drink, her allergy was so severe that it would go on for about 10 to 14 days, and we would have to have her removed from the house by ambulance. There's, there was just no other way it was going to end. My mother would continue drinking, usually vodka, um, just bottle after bottle, not eating. Um, and then, of course, she'd try to drive. So we did all the codependent things that you do in a family, hide the keys and call up her work and make excuses. And, and all the things that you think you're doing right, 
it's not. You, th you think you're acting rationally, but yeah. unfortunately, it's, it's just the wrong way to handle the situation. And um, with my father, he would get drunk. Um, and then many times he would start off jovial, but it usually ended up where he would become verbally and physically violent. And then in the morning, he wouldn't remember half of what happened, and he'd be apologizing profusely. Um, so I just wanted to give you a glimpse of, of two different types. Um, I idolized my father growing up. My father could do no wrong in my eyes. Um, but I had difficulty seeing him in his true light. Um, I think, you know, the relationship between fathers and daughters is, is you know, can be tenuous, and especially if you're, you're dealing with, um, you know, parents who are struggling with their own addictions. Um, sorry, guys, I feel like I'm rambling. Um, so my mantra growing up was, this will never happen to me. And I really believe that. Um, I watched the insanity around me. Um, my biggest fear growing up actually was that I would come home and, you know, find my mother um, passed away, particularly where she would have aspirated and, and vomited. That was like this vision I was having. And um, to cope with that, I would just throw myself into school and forget about my home life until the bell rang to go home. And then walking to the bus, I would pick up my life shit and put it back on. Uh, but school saved me. I enjoyed school. It was a sanctuary. Uh, it got me away from the craziness. Um, my first early experience with alcohol, I was 15, 16. Uh, my sister would dress me up and put makeup on me, and she'd take me to the bars. Uh, back then, uh, I'm talking late 70s, the drinking age was 18 in New Jersey, and she, she had a fake ID for me, so that was the thing, you know, we did. So <laughs> at 16, I was going out to the bars, um, but even at an early age, I was aware of the fact that my sister could drink me under the table. Uh, soaking wet, she was probably 110 pounds and can drink like a fish. Unfortunately for me, I would drink, fall on my ass, and then puke on myself. And that kind of put a damper on things. Um, and I'd always fall on the grass and invariably be wearing white pants. So it was really not a, a pretty picture. Um, but I also picked up um, early on that I didn't seem to know where my off switch was. Um, and if I could have found it, I wasn't going to bloody well turn it off. Because when I picked up the beer, my intention was to get annihilated. I just wanted to get numb. I didn't want to feel anything, and I didn't want to feel any more pain. Um, so, um, sorry. Um, that was the beginning of my introduction. Um, my drinking uh, escalated in nursing school. 
uh, that would have been 1981, um, at 19. It was tremendously stressful, and um, how we coped with it is we got together on the weekends and got trashed. Uh, my best friend from nursing school, her boyfriend was dealing cocaine, so I was exposed to cocaine, but luckily I kind of dodged a bullet because my experience with cocaine was if you're a little bit of an asshole before you do some cocaine, you turn into a mega asshole after you've done a couple of lines. I just didn't want to be around people like that. Life was annoying enough to me. Why do you think I drank? And I didn't want to be around annoying people, especially having to pay 100 bucks for Graham, who wants to do that. Anyway, um, I, I've also smoked pot. I was exposed to pot since I was 14, so that's kind of been an, an ongoing thing. Um, more for escapism, but I can honestly tell you back in those days, we could have been smoking oregano. It's not like the stuff today that's, I don't know, genetically, I don't know. It's completely different, really. I swear the stuff we were smoking was oregano, really. Um, But I've, my, my main struggle has been with alcohol and will always be with alcohol. Um, as as my nursing career took off and I started to have children, things stabilized somewhat, but life happened and, um, you know, unfortunately my husband was discharged from uh, the Air Force and uh, then our apartment burnt down and next thing you know, I've, you know, and of course I'd just given birth to uh, a three-week-old, so there was a lot of stuff happening um, and then we ended up moving back to New Jersey, and things kind of went downhill um, in my marriage and our relationship. Um, I started to realize very early on in the relationship that I was going to end up holding the bag, meaning I was going to be left to support the family, which is what happened. Um, and just the stress of, um, you know, you know, a critical care unit with patients who, you know, are coding and um, very ill, the stress of of being in charge of that really took its toll on me. Uh, I was getting to the point where I couldn't make it through a three uh, 12-hour stint, a three-night run, 12 hours a night, uh, without drinking, and that was affecting my attendance. Um... It, I'd have to say my perfectionism fueled my alcoholism. Um, if I happened to be in charge and we lost a patient, um, I would get really tilted about it, and I'd have to go over it and over it, every detail. What did I miss? What you know? What little sign was there that that you know we were going to have this this code? Um, and I would go home from from those shifts and. I would just open up the tequila. Um, I couldn't let it go. I obsessed about it. Um, and it um, really started to affect my career and um, my life. And then finally, my manager, who was the only person in my life, um, my nursing manager, she pulled me aside and she's like, Annette, we have a problem. I'm seeing a real pattern here with your attendance 
and um, she was the only person in my life who was willing to confront me. Um, and I got the opportunity 12 years later, I ran into her in the elevator, um, and I, I shot her an email to thank her and let her know that, you know, that made a huge difference in my life, her willingness to actually confront me on, hey, you have a problem. You know, um, I was aware I had a problem. I was not in denial about my disease. Um, I would, you know, go ahead and try to get drunk, and there'd be this voice in my head going, what the fuck are you doing? Put the beer down. Put the beer down. Don't open the tequila. Walk away from the fridge. What are you doing? Put the beer down. And this voice would constantly interfere with my ability to get high and enjoy myself. So, you know, I can't say denial was huge for me. I had so many um, warning signs growing up as a child that, you know, I was drinking and was blacked out. It's called a blackout, but you're actually conscious. Uh, you're talking to people, you're having a conversation, you're engaged. You don't remember any of it, none of it. Um, and it's a very cardinal sign of alcoholism. Um, so I, I was not in a huge amount of denial that I was an alcoholic, but I was in a, a huge conundrum about my ability to ever get sober. Uh, I did go to AA. I did try AA. That was you know, what I was told to do. Uh, prior to that, I had not been able to even go a week without drinking. Um, so I did the whole AA thing, but that didn't work out for me. Um, you know, they, they force you to pick a sponsor, and I picked uh, a woman who was not my first choice because my first choice wasn't taking any more sponsees. And um, as it turns out, she had just left her husband and kids and was shacking up with the guy who was doing the meeting. It's, I think they call, they call that 13-stepping, but for me it was like, I don't need to be taught how to commit adultery or how to walk out of my family. And my ego at that time was like, you don't have anything you're going to teach me. So what did I do? Walked out the door and started drinking again. That's what we do. We make excuses for why stuff doesn't work and why it's not going to work for us. So for me, um, my journey towards healing started in 2005 at an elder hostel retreat in Land of Medicine Buddha in SoCal, California. Uh, I was so intrigued by that, I came back uh, December of 2005 and took a, a Lam Rim retreat and then went away for a year to try to study and contemplate what had been taught to me. And then I came back uh, the end of 2006 um, with Venerable Rabina, and she had me take refuge with Geshe Jampa Techchok. So I'm in the, I'm in the Gampa, Land of Medicine Buddha, and we're you know, down on our knees, and I'm taking my lay vows, and all I can think about is, I'm a binge-drinking alcoholic. How, how am I supposed to keep these vows? You know, and I just thought, well, you're just going to have to try to do it one day at a time. Um, and that was the miracle for me. Keeping the vows was what I held on to day in and day out to keep myself from drinking. Um, Nothing else worked for me, and, and that is 
the miracle of this program. Uh, our spiritual path and our recovery are tightly intertwined and create a rope for us to hold on to as we navigate samsara. Um, so if I hadn't come to Land of Medicine Buddha and been exposed to the Dharma and taken my um, lay vows, um, I would still be drinking. I promise you I'd still be drinking. Um, for me, my one truth is I can never walk away from Lamala or this path because I know in my heart, if I do, I'm going to die drinking myself to death. That is my truth. And if I never have another realization, that's the most important one I need to have. Um, so that's just a little bit of you know, my journey. Um, I've been the facilitator of this group for 10 years. Um, it's for everyone. I know a lot of you must be thinking, oh, it's just for the alcoholics and the addicts. But I have to share with you a truth that was taught to me by one of my first teachers. And she said, darling, we're all addicts. It's just a question of degree. And that is the truth of the Dharma. It is impossible to progress on this path unless you are willing to engage the inner work that needs to be done. Each of us has to go in and navigate our shadow side. We're not ever asked to do it alone. Your inner guru and your law is always with you. But you have to be willing to go on that journey. Um, I mean, we have to battle our afflictions, our obscurations, and our defilements. They're not going to go away, and we can't sweep them under the, the carpet. We actually have to take them out, look at them, confront them, and release them. And that's what this group does. Um, it's, it's for everyone. We have people come in who've just lost their spouse, who've lost a beloved animal, um, they're grieving, uh, and it's not just alcohol and drugs. Um, they've lost a, you know, a relationship, all kinds of stuff. Um, so I, I just wanted to share with you guys that um, it is for everybody, mindful recovery and healing. Um, what I love about this group is the aspect of healing that we incorporate into it. It's not just about the recovery. It's so much more about the healing. Um, because for me, without the healing, I'm still going to be coming at life from that place of my wounded child. That's how I'm going to interact with the world unless I learn to stop and just you know, caress and hold that child who was wounded, abandoned, and neglected and abused. So, um, what time is it? 11.35. I was just going to share a couple of things with you guys, uh, if I can find it. I just wanted to run over to just briefly the uh, definition of addiction. Compulsive, chronic, psychological, or physiological need for a habit-forming substance, behavior, or activity having harmful physical psychological or social effects with symptoms such as anxiety, irritability, tremors, 
or nausea upon withdrawal or abstinence. So that's just Webster's definition of it. Um, the other thing I wanted to draw your attention to is what I consider life-saving in this little pamphlet, and it's on page, let me find it for you guys, page six. This truly is a survival checklist. Um, what I love about this, it's, it's from Al-Anon, but it makes me pull the focus back from everything else that is really not my business back onto me and what I can work on, what I can look to change. Um, and how I can maintain my serenity in the midst of a lot of craziness. Um, I mean, so much of this is, is just apropos. I, you know, I do not place unreasonable expectations on people. In recovery, we have a saying that an expectation is nothing more than a premeditated resentment. Hello. So anyway, I just wanted you guys to take a look at this. I, I love the checklist. It's, it's one of my favorite things. Um, I also have some handouts and, and little booklets. There wasn't really room if anybody's interested, but these are just a few little things that we put together on Mindful Recovery, and it's got the 12 steps in there. So I have a couple of those and some other handouts. Um, I wanted to open it up to the group and, you know, just ask anything, anything you want to know, any questions, concerns, complaints, anything. My name is Liam. Um, I'm not particularly sure if it's your, your bag, but did meditation, how did meditation kind of help you through this whole process? Great question, Liam. Um, I guess for the first nine months of meditating, I did nothing but sob on the cushion. Um, I just figured there's something wrong with me. But, you know, when I would talk to Lama, he's good, good. I was like, good, but it, what I was actually releasing was all the emotion that had been stuffed and smothered that I never felt as a child. We went through life with a tremendous amount of trauma. We, it was never discussed. You don't talk, you don't tell, and, and you don't share what's going on. That was considered a betrayal. So for me, sitting quiet on the cushion and getting still just brought out my pain. It kind of opened up an avenue, and I would just sit there and sob. And I still do, Liam, okay? I, that hasn't gone away. That will always be there. Um, and if I'm crying, it's because I need to release the emotion I'm still holding on to. Um, it would have been impossible for me to move along without the meditation, because that's where, it, I mean, they call it GOM, G-O-M, but it's, that's where you familiarize yourself with yourself, it's sitting quietly and getting to know, who are you really? Um, I didn't know who I was. I lost who I was. And it's been a very slow journey coming back to find myself. So ab you're absolutely right, Liam. Meditation is it, it's essential. Because otherwise I could never quiet my mind. You know, and half the time I'm sobbing, and the other time my mind's racing. And I was like, this isn't working. This sucks. But Lama would say, great, great. And I'd be like, oh, this sucks. But for me, there wasn't a different way out of it. I, I had to feel 
stuff from a very deep level. So, thank you. Did that answer your question? Okay. I thank you so much for your sharing. Oh, you, really great. Um, I'm curious on how you um, maintain the motivation to do that every single day, to do your meditation. You know, what, what drives you or what do you use? Is there something that, that keeps you going on this meditation cushion? Well, it, it's, well, for me, meditation is not just on the cushion. Meditation to me is connecting with a mind zone. Um, I, I, I like to, to me, meditation is driving like up the land of medicine Buddha. I love that drive. It's, you know, it's very narrow and curvy, and that to me is a meditation. Um, but what keeps me going, Susan, really is the fact that I am only sober for today. I don't count the years because nothing matters other than today. If I pick up a drink today, then the past 13 years don't mean shit. The only thing that matters is, am I sober today? So that is just the one thing, and some of you know I've really struggled physically with some health issues, but the other promise I had to make to Lamala, apart from I won't drink, was I won't buy a gun. Because I was getting to a point where, like, um, I was getting ready, you know, to, to just be done with a lot of things. So um, it has to be every day. Susan, I, that's why so much of it, people will talk about what's happening in two weeks or three weeks. I can't go there. I have to be here. Because really, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't have control of it. The only thing I have control over is that I don't pick up a drink today. And I'm not going to drink if I'm honest and open with myself and other people. And that's what keeps this group going. You know, Lama has said it's the longest-running group in Lion's Roar, and I would believe that to be accurate. But the drive to keep this going and the amount of people that have come through these doors, to me, it's the gateway to, you know, from their suffering. And um, that's what motivates me. It, this works. Um, this path works. Um, you know... People need to understand they need to hang on long enough for the miracle to happen. It will happen. It will. And if you're feeling low on motivation or, or down, walk into any um, you know, AA, NA meeting and watch the miracles happen. Um, but for me, this is my miracle. This path and, and you know, um, having Lama Jimpa. I wouldn't be here without Lama Jimpa. I wouldn't. And most of the long-term students know that. You know, and I wouldn't be sober without him either, Susan. It's, you know, this is a hard practice, you know, and, and it's, it, it keeps me going all by itself. No, do I want to get early on a Saturday morning? No. Do I want to go set up the meeting? No. Am I bitchy? Yeah. Once we start the meeting, am I better? Yeah. It's worth it once we start the meeting. Even if Two people show up. So, yeah, it's... Thank you for doing that. Thank you so much, Annette, for uh, your honesty and your openness and being here. And um, 
I'm just really struck, a comment and then a question, I guess. Um, I'm struck by the parallels between um, addiction and samsara and uh, refuge and recovery, um, the bodhisattva path. It's just, the parallels just, I keep seeing them over and over. It's really interesting that way. And you can read the 12 steps a lot in, in that Buddhist way if you want to. I know they were originally Christian, but they seem to be translatable pretty easily. Um, I guess the question I have is, um, what are your thoughts on refuge recovery? I don't know a whole lot about it. I just wondered what you thought about it. Um, I, I, is, that, oh, is that Noah Le- Levine? Levine? Um, we're not actually affiliated with refuge recovery. And Lamala wants to make sure that we are actually not. There's been some issues, uh, and he does not want us affiliated with that. This is a standalone program. We created it together. There's nothing out there like this. And we've given it to play. I, I met a lady today who's using it in San Francisco. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's like Lama says, you know, what are you taking refuge in? You know, for, for this program, because each and every one of us has something that's going to hook you. Um, because we live in the desire realm. And, um, you know, I, I'm happy for any of those programs out there. But, um, yeah, Refuge Recovery is kind of a, a, a different um, program. It seems like if, if people are, you know, interested in Buddhism, and interested in recovery, that's like the big obvious place for them to go, you know, just nationwide. It's, it's got to be one of the top five, I'm guessing, type of recovery I programs. Know, so Yeah, I don't know where they are. And to be honest, I don't know the specifics of what happened. There, something happened. Uh, I don't know if there was... I think he um, was um, maybe sleeping with some people or something. I was going to say, I think there was... So I think he's kind of on the outs, but I think the program is continuing. So I was... I don't know. I'm curious if they've been able to right the ship, so to speak. You know, he was one of those charima- charismatic leader type, types, you know, um, a guru gone bad. But um, I'm kind of hoping that there's something still within that program that's helping people, right, beyond him. Yeah, um, I honestly don't know. Andrew. Hi, I'm Matthew. Hi. Um, I've been to a few of those. We can talk if you want after. Uh, I was wondering, um, I was part of AA for a while, and um, what one of the things that struck me about the program was a lot of talk about um, the addict mind and um, normies, how there was like a separation between normal people and addict people. And um, so I'm wondering your thoughts on, about that in, in relation to the Buddhist ideas of no abiding self. Well, I can't speak to the no abiding self, Matthew. Save that for Lamala. That's, yeah, I'm abiding, but I can't talk about no abiding. Um, I've just lost my train of thought. Hang on a minute. So what was the other part of the question, Matthew? As far as normies? Honestly, I don't know that there's such a thing. It's just this arbitrary label we put on people who 
we think are not having problems with substances or uh, shopping or whatever is triggering them. If, if I look at the Buddha Dharma, there is no normie. There is no normie. We all have our shit that we're contending with. All of us. Every single one of us. And the thing is, we're only as sick as our secrets. So the more we hold it down and push it down and try to keep it quiet, the sicker we become. So, I, you know, we each have something. Um, it's impossible to get through the journey and not get hooked by something. Uh, as I've, I've said to Lamala several times, I have a highly addictive mind. There is not a substance, a person, a thing that I cannot get addicted to. If I find something, I'll let you guys know. But, you know, my, my insight into that was um, 1987. My girlfriend sent me um, Nintendo Mario Brothers and, you know, the spent three days playing video games. I was like, Houston, we have a problem. I didn't leave the house. I didn't shower. I was like, okay, packed up the whole thing and put it away. That's just my mind. I'll just glom onto it and watch out. So um, I just don't believe there are normies. We're all suffering. The normies just try to hide it differently, you know? But they're suffering just as we are. And, you know, my only message is, um, this is the way out. This is the way out. And I forgot to mention, but I, I want you guys to be aware, with Lamala's 12 steps, um, because this is the entire path. This is the entire path. The first four are related to the Four Noble Truths, the first teaching of the Buddha. And the last eight, sorry, are the Eightfold Path to Enlightenment. So... Really, the path is contained in this entire page. Um, so, thank you for that uh, heartfelt sharing. Very Absolutely. open. Uh, our paths aren't very different. In what way do you think um, the shadow work perpetuates healing after the fundamentals of recovery are in place? For me, the shadow work was essential. Um, I'm still struggling with a lot of shame, toxic shame. Um, and those feelings, I, I never felt that, that stuff. Um, and so a lot of the, the shadow work is going down into my dark places and navigating them. Um, the one thing I realized when I was doing some of this, sounds weird, but I, I was, became very aware that I had been killing in another life. Um, and I used to like, I just won't make sense, but I, I used to think like, well, I'm a nurse, I care for people, and I'm compassionate. And then I had to kind of reconcile this other part that was actually 
murdering and killing people. That was just something that came up along the work. But there's, there's so much down there that, that you start pulling out you know, one layer, and then you just keep, keep digging around. Um, the work that I'm still um, trying to come to terms with is a lot of shame, toxic shame work. Um, that's very deeply rooted and doesn't want to release itself. Um, and the thing is, we can't force the healing. The healing will happen, and I'm just going to keep, you know, doing the work. But um, all of the shadow work just gave me more of an insight into myself. I didn't even really know myself. I didn't have a personality apart from just show up and be quiet. Nobody wants to hear you. So... I don't know if that answered your question, but yeah, it's it's essential going to that place in us. Yeah. And do you find when you do that, it kind of reinvigorates the motivation? Like when you make it to a level of that shadow, you know, obviously it drags you down, but then you come back. You come back up. Side. But when you hit that, like you kind of level up, like things get a little bit easier all the way around. Yeah, because it'll bring me to a place of forgiveness. When I get to that place of real forgiveness, uh, that's, that's the healing for me, where I'm not holding on to the woundedness and the betrayal and the abandonment and uh, the abuse. Hey. Um, so is there a particular practice that you do that kind of has like a container around those, like engaging with those shadows, or do you just do it? My primary practice is Medicine Buddha. Um, I just have always had a heart connection since going to Land of Medicine Buddha. Um, and that's, I've just, you know, I, I just believe very deeply uh, in this practice and the ability for it to heal us. So um, my main practice is the Medicine Buddha practice. And is that also like with where the shadows come up or? When do you engage with that? That's usually on the cushion. Um, And it's not always on the cushion. Stuff will come up in dreams. Um, So there will be all aspects of our personality trying to give us messages. So it's not always on the cushion, Jackie. uh, That's why Lama will ask us about our dreams. Um, But I, I try to tune into what is the universe trying to show me? You know, what am I not hearing kind of thing. To follow up with what Jackie was asking, can you um, talk a little bit about how the Medicine Buddha practice is part of the program and a little bit more about how Medicine Buddha is a part of your recovery? I mean, I'm, I'm trying to make the connection with Medicine Buddha. Well, the, the Medicine Buddha... Um I mean, the practice and, and the meeting, um, a lot of what I do is, and we do it in the group too, we're, we're doing some guided meditation. Um, so a lot of the healing is, is actually the visualization of bringing in the healing energy. Um, and I'm using that in several things. I'm using that for the nausea, I'm using it for migraines. Um, but just that, that visualization of certain areas being flooded with, with the Medicine Buddha energy. 
Um, and we've added that to the program because members were having difficulty feeling like they were pulling the energy in. Um, so I, there is a guided meditation that we do to bring the energy in and to release some of you know, our anger, our aggression, or stuff like that. So. Of, of, the me- of this? Um, well, we, we start off, uh, and I'll run you guys through it. We start off on page 10, reading the Medicine Buddha Guided Meditation. I don't know what I'm going to have time for. Um, that sets the tone, and then we move into, and I don't have it, uh, there's, then we move into the first 12-minute uh, meditation, and the first five or six minutes, and I don't have it with me and it's not in there, is just guided visualization on bringing healing energy in and releasing, you know, resentment, avoidance, stuff like that. Um, and that's the first meditation, um, and that goes on for 12 minutes. Then we come back and we read through page two, through page seven. And then the other aspect of bringing in the healing is we do mantra recitation. Um, And the Medicine Buddha mantra is on page 11. And then the interpretation of the mantra is on page 13. Um, And we do the mantra recitation. We do it for a total of five minutes. We do two and a half minutes out loud together. And then I gong and we go silent for the remaining two and a half minutes. Now, the reason for that is uh, Lamala wants us to develop internal and external mind protection. That's the meaning of mantra, mind protection. So when we do it together, we're working on external, and then as we go silent, we're working on the internal mantra protection. Um, And as we do it together, it's very powerful. It sets up a vibration in the body. It's, it's kind of a cadence, and it's very effective. Um, and I've shared with the group many times, I'll get triggered. All of a sudden, I'll find myself in the donuts or the alcohol, and I'm just like, I'll just go right to Medicine Buddha and just back out of whatever, you know, triggered me, because I, I love cakes and cookies and all that stuff, and I can't have them. So, um, the mantra really does protect. I've used it. Let me just give you the most recent example. My ex was down to help me with my infusions last week at the cancer center. And every time he pissed me off, I just went into the mantra. Needless to say, I was doing a lot of mantra over those five days. But it does help me because then at least I shut up and don't open up my mouth because I'm pissed off. You know, he's going to be who he is and he's not going to listen to me. So I just need to do my mantra and shut up. So it is. It's very helpful, and it's, it's really effective. Um, but that's part of external and internal mind protection. And it's, it's very powerful when we do it in a group. The energy just changes. It's, it's, we had a newcomer, and he was blown away. So, yeah. Uh, and then we go into our final 12-minute silent meditation, then we do group sharing, and then 10 minutes before the end, we go around to each individual and have them talk about their intentions for healing and wellness that week. So, so that's, 
So that's Mindful Recovery in a nutshell. Uh, we should take a break. It's been a long time, and then hopefully we'll take a 10-minute break. Oh, yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Lama was like, don't forget to take a break. Don't forget. <laughs> yeah, okay. we'll take a break. That's a good idea. No, I just wanted to that um, I thought of at the time. When one's working uh, deeply on the shadow, a lot of very, very uh, frightening, very negative things can come up. It can really be a downer if you don't have your uh, center, a very good center, and how very vital it is if you're doing this work to have a leader, to have a counselor, to have someone as your support, a very knowledgeable and very, uh, you know, the right support because if one tries to do this too much alone, you know, Absolutely. without someone like Lama Ma or someone to uh, support you, I think it could be very, really scary. Yeah, no, <laughs> absolutely, Susan. I just thought I'd mention work, that. The work itself is triggering. Um, when I first started, I, I was getting trauma flashbacks. And I was like, I'm off the cushion. Do you know what I mean? I, 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 that's what I needed at the time. I, you know what I mean? And it was just like, I'm coming off the cushion. But that's what started coming up was, was you know, snippets of trauma. And it's just all of a sudden it's there and there's no, um, there's no safety net. You know, you're, you're like, yeah. yeah. But that to me is a good sign because the stuff is coming up. Uh, and that's part of the healing too. It's, it's got to be seen, felt, recognized, and released. You know? This has been a Lion's Roar Dharma Center recording. For more information, visit lionsroardharmacenter.org.